Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Landon Mayer, and he'll be answering your questions on guide flies. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Landon a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Just fill in your name and email address in the form on the right side of our web pages, and we'll let you know when the next live show will be. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. You can also find it on any of the podcast distribution sites like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. So if you have to leave early, you can return to the website at any, or any of the podcast platforms at your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. If you're out and about on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, we'd sure appreciate it if you'd share a podcast. And when you do, use the hashtag AskAboutFlyFishing and also hashtag FlyFishing and also hashtag LandonMayor. So if you have a moment, do it right now and get people involved and share the knowledge that we're going to we're going to get from Landon tonight. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted and is property of the Knowledge Group Inc. doing businesses ask about fly fishing. When we return, we'll be talking with Landon Mayer about guide flies. The Colorado River at Lee's Ferry is called by some the world's largest spring creek. It's a massive clear running tailwater fishery that runs 15.5 miles from the base of the Glen Canyon Dam to the upper reaches of the Grand Canyon. At times, it gives the impression of being not one or two, but a series of parallel Spring Creek-like waterways. The fishing is great, and the scenery is gorgeous. Lee's Ferry Anglers provides professional guide service to this outstanding rainbow trout fishery, as well as food and lodging at Cliff Dwellers Restaurant and Lodge. See for yourself why Lee's Ferry is on every fly fisher's must-do list. Visit leesferryanglers.com or call them at 800-962-9755. That's leesferryanglers.com, or call them at 800-962-9755. Before we introduce Landon, we'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. For our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. So you have two chances to win tonight in our drawing. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and look for the link under Landon's section that says register for our free drawing. Click on that link, fill out the form, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away a copy of Landon's latest book, Landon Mayer's Guideflies, courtesy of Stackpole Books. And to find out more about what Stackpole publishes, go to stackpolebooks.com. And of course, we have links on our homepage here tonight next to Landon's show with Landon's latest book, Landon Mayer's Guide Flies, as well as many other books that Landon's written there too. So here's how you can win Landon's book. You have to be the first person to answer the question we ask at the end of the show. The question will be about something we talked about during the show, and you must submit your answer along with your name and location using that text box on our homepage. So listen closely, type fast, take notes, pay attention, and maybe you'll win Landon's book tonight. Our guest tonight is Landon Mayer. Landon's angling success is fueled by an addiction to pursuing selective quality trout on the fly. He enthusiastically teaches and demonstrates his techniques and 
on river knowledge to fellow anglers and has developed innovative strategies for sighting, hooking, and landing selective trout. He shares these tips and secrets in his books, 101 Trout Tips, a guide's secrets, tactics, and techniques, Colorado's best fly fishing, sight fishing for trout, the hunt for giant trout, 25 top locations in the U.S. to catch a trophy. And in addition to that, he has an instructional video, Mastering the Short Game. His latest book, Landon Mayer's Guideflies, was released in December of 2021. Landon's passion for fly fishing has allowed him to make several noteworthy contributions to the sport on and off the water. This has included travels to fly fishing related organizations of the mid-Atlantic, West, Pacific Northwest, Southwest, and Southern states, as well as teaching through guided trips, fly fishing classes, presentations, and demonstrations of his unique techniques. Landon is a contributing writer for Fly Fisherman and High Country Angler magazines. His contributions have also been featured in publications such as Fly Fusion and American Angler magazines. As an ambassador in the fly fishing industry, he represents several lines, including Sims Fly Fishing Apparel, and is a royalty fly designer for Uncoa Feather Merchants. He is also an advisory team member of Sims, Bauer Reels, R.L. Winston Rod, Scientific Angler, Smith Optics, Fish Pond, Yeti Coolers, Regal, Flycraft, and Casio Protect Trek Watches. Landon has been guiding in Colorado full-time on the South Platte River for the last 21 years and one full season on the Naknek River in Alaska. Landon, welcome back to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Oh, thanks, Roger. It's a pleasure to be back, and happy holidays to you, my friend. Yeah, same to you. Man, it's 21 years goes by fast, doesn't it? (laughs) (laughs) It's like you blink and the seasons go by, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, I was just trying to look back at here in our archive because we've done one, two, three, four, five, six shows over the years. And I was trying to look back to see when we did that, the first one, which I know it, it could have been 21 years ago. <laughs> I did, yeah, it was, not, it was not a quite, while. Not quite. It was a while. Uh, I think it was yeah. uh, 2007 is what I recall. 2007, 2008 was our first show together. Yeah, which it would have been the second year that I had started to ask about fly fishing. So that goes back uh, awesome. quite a ways. Yeah, quite a ways. So, so do <laughs> welcome back. And for Thank everybody you. that missed it last week, both Landon and I got our power knocked out at the same time. He's in yep. southern Colorado more so, or mid-Colorado. I'm up northern uh, a little bit further, but... We had like 100 mile an hour plus winds, and I lost power for 13 hours. I don't know about you, Landon. How long did you lose yeah. power for? It was around that. It was 15 hours for us. But there were some people in Colorado Springs and surrounding suburbs that were out, I think, four or five days. It was incredible. Some of the wind speeds were clocked up to 128 miles an hour. It was unbelievable wind and storms and of course no guiding going on for those two or three days for sure (laughs) oh yeah yeah that's for sure yeah so sorry we couldn't do this last week but there was technically just no way we could do it in fact as i was talking to land and my cell tower went out i don't know if you knew that land of it i had cell service and all of a sudden the tower itself went down (laughs) oh my goodness oh Oh, my goodness yeah i know i know we're we're both trying to start a fire and light the candle, start a fire, and get things nice and warm. <laughs> Hunker yeah, down. Yeah, I got a lot of reading kind of done. I read three I read three books that day. <laughs> oh, I believe it. I believe half, it, yeah. Half of it them nice by flashlight. Nice to get it in. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. No, it was it was quite the challenge, but I'm glad we're I'm glad we're back. I appreciate everybody okay. connecting tonight and asking the questions. It's gonna be a great show. I'm excited. Yeah, yeah. And we have a ton of questions uh coming in here. Uh, and still coming in already on the internet here. I'm seeing them come in. So can everybody hear us loud and clear out there? If you can just reply in that question box on the homepage, let me know that you can hear me and Landon clearly. I would appreciate that just to know that we're getting a good recording out there. Okay, where do we begin? We, <laughs> let's start with an easy question. What is a guide fly? Roger in Houston, Texas wrote in and asked that. And yeah, I mean, what is a guide fly? Yeah, I appreciate that, Roger, and I hope you're staying warm there in Texas. In my opinion, a guide fly, and the reason for designing a lot of the patterns in the book, Guide Flies, it needs to have three features. First, it needs to be realistic. Second, it needs to be durable. And third, it needs to be versatile. And the reason that's important for me is performing on the water with clients as a full-time guide, you have to make sure you have all the tools at hand and numbers of tools as well. And I think what's really cool about this book is not only the 12 flies I have with them, but I have to say from the beginning are the eight patterns included from other great friends and designers. And real quick, Roger, I'd like to just name those individuals because they really are key to make this book possible. Arlo Townsend, Angus Drummond, Phil Trellia, Walt Mueller Jr., Michael Burgess, Dave Hoover, Kevin Davidson, and Ken Walrath. And they all collectively included one of their own patterns to make it a total of 20. But having flies that you can pay attention to detail and crank out numbers to where it's detailed production is what I like to call it, is what I truly do think makes an an awesome guide fly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's several questions about this. I'm going to just dig in deep on them because there's just... Sure. There's little nuances here. Rick Takahashi, who I've had on my show as well, I think three or four times now, and it's an incredible fly tire. He wrote in and says, Landon, what's your thought process when you're designing your fly patterns? How do you determine what materials to incorporate into the flies? And how long do you test your patterns? That's a great question. And Rick's a wonderful man. No Mercy Midge in Awani's extended body dry fly. He's an amazing designer with Uncle Feather Merchants and just a really good person. If you haven't met Rick, you want to spend time with him on the water and on the vibes. Personally, I use a lot of ideas and thoughts of how natural food supplies move in the water. A good example of this is one of my recent series in the leech pattern, which is the mini leech jig damsel. And for many years, I would fish damsel patterns that seem to have a streamlined approach and appearance simplistic flies, whether it be marabou in a hook or a marabou tail and a dub body with a soft tackle collar, what I quickly realized is a couple things. Number one, the size of the head and the eyes seem to be the identifying factors. And I try to key in on that. What do trout key in on for identifying it's a natural food supply? And I think number one is silhouette and can be coloration. And second to that can be movement. And for the mini leech jig damsel, I actually measured the head and the eyes of the natural food supply and tried to match it with materials with extra small eyes, D skin, and also the shape of the head where it has that praying mantis appearance. And that was done by feeding the eye through the D skin. And there's a few more steps in the pattern, but that's a good example of just what the trout key in on and how silhouette size and color does match. So I start out with trying to understand and visualize the natural food supply. 
Then I think about materials that I've seen or that I see in catalogs on the pegboards and fly shops, and just really the process of going through tying a fly and fishing it for two or three weeks, tying a fly and fishing it. And I personally think the biggest advantage as an angler designing flies is the fact that I can test them on everyday, everyday guide trips. It really does make a big difference. So if I have a pattern, not only does it look cool, but I'm confident it could catch some fish. The ultimate test is to see how it performs in prime action and not just by itself, Roger, what I like to do is I like to test it against other patterns that have produced in the past. So that's kind of the process, the thought, and it can take Rick up to, I've had patterns that end in the box designed for two years before they're even submitted. My first initial patterns ever submitted was the Mare's Mini Leech back in 2010. And I had that fly in my box for probably four years before it was submitted. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's a lot of testing for sure. But do you get, I mean, how many days do you guide a year now? Like 300 or something landed? It's up there. I do about 200 to 215. My good friend, Phil Trelli okay. is in the book actually broke. I think he broke the South Platte record this year with no joke, 225 or 228 days on the water. And we oh. start typically in March. And yeah, I know it's crazy to go through November, but this year, being that it's so warm without the snow, we're definitely doing a lot more trips in the winter months. But I would say safely 200 days plus 65 to 70 days on your own and just really having a chance to test it when it's prime, when the fish are keying in on it, and then also test it before and after the hatch and kind of the shoulder seasons as well can really help you get results. Yeah, yeah. Now, you just mentioned, I think it was the mini leech jig damsel, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Wasn't that? Yeah, yeah. So that's in your book, and you've got kind of a unique rigging in there. You want to explain to people how you fish that fly? Exactly. Yeah, you bet. And it's it's part of the leech series. And the leech series starts out with the mare's mini leech, which is unweighted, the mini leech jig with the black bead, black rust, and olive body, and then the mini leech jig radiant, which has the colored bead where we do black and orange, black and purple, white and pink, rust, and olive and olive, and then finally the mini leech jig damsel. And I personally, over the last five years, have fallen in love with rigging those on a dry dropper setup. And other ways you can do so is blow an indicator and then on contact or tension drifting a Euro rig, you can use that as your anchor fly. And lastly, you can use it set up for a streamer. And in the book, we were fortunate that the legendary Dave Hall did eight illustrations of the flies, how to rig them, and we included measurements. So if I were to do the personal favor being dry dropper, I'll have a dry fly on top and then trailing off the bend of the hook for one of the rigs, I'll apply 18 to 36 inches to the first fly or second fly below it. And the first initial contact with the Mare's Mini Leech Jig Damsel is I like to tie it with a clench knot. And what that does is allow the fly to hold and remain balanced below the surface. If there's a loop knot, it'll move up and down. But with an improved clinch knob below a dry fly, it remains balanced. So if you can imagine a dry fly on the surface skating, and then below you're skating that damsel, mimicking that swimming motion the naturals do to the bank, it allows you not only to trigger more response because of silhouette, coloration, and movement, but you can also manipulate incredibly shallow water, even dropping it six inches below the dry, where some of those fish come up just like rooster fish in the beach trying to 
case of single sardine. Yeah, right, right. Okay, Allard in Calgary. And we've got people written in questions, by the way. I mean, I've got Colorado, Missouri, Illinois, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Florida, Kentucky, California, Wyoming, New York, Dublin, Ireland, Minnesota, Texas, Iowa. (laughs) I mean, uh, people all over. Yeah, so we've got a, a lot of people listening tonight. So Allard in Calgary, Alberta says, what is the most important to consider when choosing slash tying a guidefly? The durability, the number of materials, the time to tie. I know you just listed off all the qualities of a good guidefly, but any one of those more important than the others? Yeah, so I think a lot of times when designing a fly, it's in thinking about materials and then going into rigging. Simplicity is really the key. And I used the story of when I first went out and witnessed how a leech could be effective, and that was on the North Platte in Wyoming. I was with Cowboy Drifters, Jason Hamrick, and John Barr. John Barr being my mentor, I'm thankful he was able to open doors and allow me to even get to this point in, in fly design. Well, we were fishing a slump buster all day, and we have the full story in the book, but halfway through the day, a couple of these flies were hit so hard that the wire broke off the rabbit at the bend of the hook. So now we had the rabbit on a slump buster coming off the eye of the hook. And it really did hit me. And I thought, man, if you could do that and maximize movement and make it a smaller profile, like some of these leeches we see in the water, then how can you do that and remain effective and use this as a streamer slash nymph and attach it to dry fly rigs? And that's where micro pine squirrels started the fly a little flash on the body. And then I realized probably a year later, just how effective ostrich is. So I really try to think about materials that not only move, but hold their value in the water, hold their form. And in addition to that, when you're delivering a presentation, you're maximizing movement within a very confined space. And I know in Canada with a lot of the still waters you have, and that's still rally country as well. Phil and I are doing a class at the fly fishing show this year. So look for that one. It'll be fun. But when you're dealing with still waters and rivers alike, I think just maximizing movement in a short space and simplifying the material usage really does allow you to crank out numbers, keep it simplistic, and not overdo the fly with too much flash or too much realistic design or synthetics to where it takes away from movement. Okay, okay. Scott Lorenz in Littleton, Colorado, he says, I understand most people agree that size, profile, and color are the order of importance when selecting and tying flies. Where do you rate movement in this equation? And that's kind of what you were just talking about with the leech patterns. He says, my experience shown flies with hackle or legs that move help to sell the fly to fish. Do you agree or disagree? Yeah, that's a great question. That's actually one of the ones I keyed in on when I was going over the review questions before the show. And thanks again to everybody for your support to even make this book possible and asking these great questions. And when I'm dealing with presentation, I'm a huge fan And I'm not a big fan of, I'll start out with drag-free drifts all the time. I understand the importance of drag-free where we try to eliminate tension on the rig, manipulate multiple current speeds. But I always teach my clients and other anglers that remember your fly is always moving, whether it's micro movement on the surface, in the film, or below the surface. Even if it's calm water, there's always life to the fly and life, most importantly, to a natural food supply. So I'm a big believer in movement. I know a lot of people rate a fly where you start out with silhouette coloration and movement could be third. And that is true. But if you take any pattern and instead of just dead drifting it or what we're taught to believe is a dead drift, 
add more movement to what's already happening, whether it's a twitch, whether it's a swing, whether you're trying to retrieve it back, and how many times have you been there in the water for those of us who can't get enough of this passionate sport, but you're stripping back a pattern like let's say an egg, and all of a sudden the fish comes up and hammers a, a stripped egg, and you're thinking, what in the world just happened? I think it's the movement that not only at times can match the natural food supplies movement, but also trigger a strike, whether they see the fly escaping, they see movement crossing in front of their viewing lane, all of that plays a big part. So I think personally for me, silhouette number one, and then movement is right there with coloration. If trout are looking up and that food supply is contrasting against a bright sky, it's more shadow silhouette and movement that's going to be apparent to the fish first is what I believe. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of those materials, uh, those natural materials, the pine squirrel, the ostrich, the marabou, I mean, the movement that those things, those feathers and fur have in the water is incredible. Yeah. Stuart Van Dorn, Chicago, Illinois, writes in, he says, most guides say that the best fly is three, maybe four materials, ties in two minutes and doesn't bother them to see it pitched into the trees, shrubs and occasionally snapped off. True or part of guide mythology? <laughs> <laughs> well, first off, amen to that. Isn't that the truth? And that is 100% fact. It's production ties. And when I was starting out guiding at the Broadmoor Hotel on the South Platte River, Phil Camera was also another great individual I started working with. And he's kind of the godfather of synthetics. He invented and designed larva lace. And I was fortunate enough with Ed Engel to have Phil Camera on board with our crew. And I'll never forget when we were discussing fly design and makes and materials, when he would show me patterns like his heathen. And if you're not familiar with that, just Google the pattern and fill camera. And it is true. I like to teach in threes and I like to tie in threes. And if it's possible, three pattern or three materials for the pattern, minimal steps. And if your steps can be anywhere from three to six, sometimes you have to bump it up to nine. That makes it a production tie. You're not worried about losing it in the trees on the river bottom. And if you're guiding full day with three people, you do need to crank out numbers. And the biggest question I receive on the water daily with clients is how many flies do I tie in a year? And just generally speaking, for me to stay connected to the water, to the trip in preparation for each day following a trip in the day before is I like to tie a dozen flies the evening before a trip. And what that does is help me visualize the trip, think about the insects. It gets me connected onto the water before I even step on ground or step in the river. And if I were to equate that to 200 days, that's 12 times 200. We're talking over 2,000 flies. So in designing these flies, you're exactly right. They need to be simplistic minimal, paying attention to detail. And as you mentioned, Roger, just really concentrating on materials that not only breathe and move, but the key there is when the fly stops, it still has life. It still has movement. Yeah. That makes a huge difference. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if a lot of people know, but guides have a long day. <laughs> I mean, they're up at the crack Very of dawn so. to meet their client. They're on the water all day. And in the Northern yeah. Hemisphere up here, you can be guiding for 10 hours. I mean, the, the daylight's yeah. there. And then you got to go back <laughs> and tie a dozen flies and then somewhere fit, fit a little bit of sleep in there. So, I mean, a lot of people don't realize how much work goes into guiding. But but I've seen you guys at your vices at night <laughs> cranking oh, yeah. them off. Absolutely. But, uh, 
exactly. uh, especially if they've exactly. had a very bad caster the day before who's been in the trees. So we've all been there. Absolutely. We all oh, start from the, from the beginning and we've all been there, but you're so right. It's long days. And the key is just staying motivated. Really just don't give up on the vice hours. Don't give up on the vice time. Even if you tied three flies, your dead be tired, but you took the time to tie the three. I promise you when you sit down and you crank out those three, it automatically transfers your mind into a focal zone where you're focusing on what's going to happen the next day. And you'd be shocked how fast 12 comes out of the vice. It's incredible. Yeah. So I know we got to take a quick break. And when we you come bet. back, we'll uh, dig into more of these questions. So hang tight. There are not many places in the world where you can fly fish for permit, tarpon, bonefish, and snook, all within a few miles of each other. But you can in Belize. When you fish with Charlie Leslie fly fishing, you're on a private island and are only minutes away from some of the finest fly fishing in Belize. You'll start out from Placencia and take just a 30-minute boat ride to your lodging on the island. Once you're there, you'll be fishing lagoons full of tarpon and targeting permit on the flats of Permit Alley. Bonefish and snook are ready for your cast as well. Charlie Leslie, with over 50 years of experience in the waters of Belize, his son Marlon Leslie and their other hand-picked guides know the local waters like no others. Book your next Belize adventure now with Charlie Leslie Fly Fishing. Visit charlielesleyflyfishing.com or call 303-430-4634. Again, that's charlielesleyflyfishing.com, 303-430-4634. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Landon Mayer about guide flies. If you'd like to ask Landon a question, go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com. Use that Q&A text box and send us your question, and we'll see if we can't get to it tonight. Landon, I always ask my guests what's going on in your fly fishing world, so tell us about <laughs> your business and also what's coming up this year. It looks like we're going to have some fly fishing shows, right? At least We are, yeah. No, I, Yeah, we hope so, and I appreciate you asking. It's been great. The, the book's just coming out, and after 2020 into 2021, I was able to attend the Fly Time Symposium with Chuck Fremsky. I'll be at Ben Fremsky's fly fishing shows. I'll be in Marlboro, Atlanta, New Jersey, California, and Denver. I'll also be at the Midwest Fly Fishing Expo. I'll be with Jack Dennis down in Utah. I'll be there in April. And some similar events in between, I'll be at Trout's Fly Fishing for a class and Angler's Cubby. And it's really just a lot of great opportunities. The thing I love about the release of a book in situations like this with a fly time book is just how many opportunities you get to spend time with anglers at shops, sit down on the vice, and really show them another passion and art within the great sport of fly fishing. There's so many different angles that you can take to fly fishing to really make you successful. And as I mentioned, I'm thankful every day for family. I'm thankful every day to be on the water and I can't believe it, as we discussed at the beginning of the show, just how fast time flies. And you think about the months and 12 months in a year and all the seasons that happen and transition so quick, it really does make the years fly by fast. And the kiddos get older, turn into young adults, and we end up trying to chase bigger and, and badder fish. So it's always a pleasure. But that's kind of what I have coming up. And some great articles with fly fishermen, an article in Fly Tire Magazine, and we just had one released in uh, High Country Angler Magazine. So thanks again for asking, Roger. Yeah, and why don't you give us your website address as well so people can find you. You bet. Yeah, it's LandonMareFlyFishing.com. I'll guide until I can't walk anymore. Literally love being on the water, teaching anglers, and it really is the value. I think a lot of these flies, theories, concepts, techniques, they all come from not just fishing to the river, 
sea and the line, the river and the trout, or the line, the still water and the fish. It's the whole picture, and that's really what I enjoy every day is just learning something new and always remaining a student. And you can find me on my YouTube channel, Land and Mare Fly Fishing, on Facebook, Land and Mare Fly Fishing, and also at Land and Mare Fly Fishing on Instagram. Great. Thanks for sharing. And you bet. Yeah, everybody, look for Landon at the shows. He always gives great presentations, and he's always there willing to share, which all of us appreciate. So thanks, Landon. Absolutely. Bob Garman in Pennsylvania says – <laughs> this sounds familiar. I'm constantly trying to pare down the number of flies and fly boxes I have in my vest. It would be nice to hit the stream with less than a thousand flies. <laughs> Any suggestions <laughs> on how to get down to the bare essentials? What flies uh, I love it. could be used for multiple hatches? Gosh, isn't that the truth? I mean, you sit there and it's just like any trip you go on, right? You have you've tied 20, 30 different patterns. You go into an exotic or a new location and you end up using two. And you're looking at the rest yeah. of the flies thinking, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this over the next 50 years and have a giant collection of flies. I may never fish, but they're going to look great in the box. And, and I deal with that all the time on the water as well. And I think paring down, this is what I've found. This is the best method for myself, and I hope it helps fellow anglers out there. I pare down my flies. I used to try to fit a baker's dozen and try to think about my book, Sight Fishing for Trout. It was a great example. It's now in its second edition. And what we did with this book is we put in 12 core patterns, how they work, recipes, how to fish them. And that did work for some time. But what I found now is that I try to break it down where I have a nymph box, I have a dry fly box, and I have a streamer box. And as a full-time guide, that's evolved even a little bit further to where I'll open up a small streamer box from Umqua and I'll have a dozen streamers. The top three for me are going to be the tips up from Kelly Gallup, the meat whistle from John Barr, the double ganga, and I think tied with the meat whistle is going to be Blaine Chocolate's feathered game changer. Those are really great streamer imitations, but I have 12 in a box. Then I do the same for my nymphs. I have nymph box set up to where if I were to have some core flies in the nymphs box, it's going to be the mare's mini leech unweighted in the mini leech jig, the weighted series, a pheasant tail, a buckskin, and a black beauty. I think those are really core patterns that work well. And there's other patterns that work good during seasons, whether it be the jujubatus, the lightsaber, the puderbaw caddis on dry flies, all of that plays a part. But if you have a dozen drives, a dozen nymphs, and a dozen streamers, that's a great starting point. And I think that's also realistic. It's not a minimal selection. It's not overkill, but it gives you a fighting chance to match every hatch that you could encounter. And then lastly, think about the flies in your home waters, whether it be you're on the west dealing with PMDs or you're on the east dealing with sulfurs. Make sure that you're matching your home hatches, and then that will allow you to really evolve your game because you have those 36 flies that are going to be the key flies, a dozen for each discipline, generally speaking, that gives you a fighting chance. Yeah, yeah. George in St. Augustine, Florida wrote in, he says, and go, kind of goes along with this, do you have a core set of guide flies that you use your round and you just kind of listed a bunch of those off? Or do you have a different sure. group for each season, spring, summer, fall, or winter? That's a great question too. So in the core 36, I try to match it to the season. And there are flies that are just incredible being how versatile they are in any given waterway. 
And let's a good example of this, a couple of them would be the mini leech, a midge, and a buckskin. If we took those three as subsurface imitations, if that's just purely for example, it's always leech season, whether it's high water, low water, dirty, clear water. Fish are used to seeing leeches, and it's not unfamiliar to them to see a leech in any one of those conditions and take. The same is said for a midge. How many times have we all been guilty of trying to match the hatch, getting wrapped up into thinking what fly is going to match a PMD or a bluing olive, and we forget that one of the only versatile food supplies year-round are midges. So if we go down and pair it down to a size 20 midge and drift the tube midge to a trout in the middle of summer in red, and that's available in the book in step ties, that really can make the difference. And I think lastly, the buckskin is one of my favorite all-time patterns. And the reason for that is that this imitation matches midges and matches caddis. And caddis are found starting as early as April in the spring, going as late as October, November in the fall. But trout are very familiar with seeing caddis throughout the year, throughout different water conditions, whether it be on rivers and still waters alike for any one of those flies or food supplies. And then for the still water game, match in the coronamids where the titan tube midge or the triton tube midge are imitations found year round that fish really can key in on. Great, great. Yeah. Interesting how some of those just the flies that never quit, like you mentioned, pheasant tail or black booty, <laughs> beauty or skin. Yeah, I mean, how long has a buckskin been around? I don't know. That's been around forever, it seems like. But still oh, works. Yeah. And that pheasant tail, it's kind of pheasant tail, hair's ear. I mean, if all else fails, <laughs> one of those is always catching fish. But yeah, and good, don't, good. And um, don't, forget the, don't forget the rim chung special, the RST. That's a must-have. Absolutely. You bet. Okay. So, Matt. Matt Rossett in Salt, Colorado's really got some gall here. After you just wrote a book and shared all your guide flies, and he says, do you have any secret fly patterns <laughs> that you're willing to share that are not in the book? And sure. Matt, I would say, no, they're secret. So he's not going to share the secret ones. <laughs> they're secrets. Yeah. <laughs> but no, go ahead really, and talk to that. You bet. No, I love that question. Thanks for asking. And and they really are. You know, a lot of these flies, for me, are the secret weapons, is what I like to call them. The secrets in the sport of fly fishing are imitations that you can hold to yourself. And I had a lot of these flies for a long time, but I believe in giving back. And I, drew, I truly believe the sport, the way that you grow, whether it be as a career or just as an angler in your passion, is the art of giving back. That's why these secret weapons really have worked so well for so many years. And some of the great flies that I've used are very simplistic and ones where you find them and you think, man, that is an unbelievable imitation. And that really is what makes them secret. And for me, sharing the book and sharing these 20 imitations are some of the secret weapons I've held in the box and have worked well over time. And it really is incredible just how much those have really upped the game. And I would say for a secret weapon, something that's been held back a little bit over the years, for me, it's a tips up streamer from Kelly Gallup. That fly is not only universal in its design and make for trout, but I've caught more fish on that thing with streamers for pike, carp, bass, the way it moves in the water. And if you look at the details of that tie where it's got two popper heads on that trailing hook, that really does make a big difference. So if I were to give something over the phone that's not in the book but is in mastering the short game as far as design and make, as a secret weapon, that for sure is a fly. That's an awesome streamer to have in the box. 
the tips up streamer by Kelly Gallup. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And Kelly has a lot of great patterns. I mean, that guy has he does. produced some Absolutely. Uh, incredible, especially streamers. Oh my gosh. Incredible tire. Okay. I need to take another quick break. Landon, we'll be right back and we'll continue on. So Enrico Pugliese flies pride themselves with creating unique and one of a kind flies and fly tying material. Enrico has been experimenting with durable synthetic and natural materials to create flies and catch fish for more than 20 years. His innovative products include brushes, fibers, and components that have made a major impact on the direction of saltwater fly fishing, and his methods and materials are respected worldwide. Whether you want your flies hand-tied for you or would like to tie your own, be sure to visit Enrico Puglisi Flies and browse through their online catalog. Visit epflies.com and do a little shopping today. Again, that's epflies.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Landon Mayer about guide flies. If you have a question, use that form on our homepage, send it in, and we'll try to get it answered. Speaking of which, Landon, we do have some that have come in on the Internet. Stuart Van Dorn, Buffalo Grove. So Euro-nymphing, fad or effective, and your choice of flies. I think it's very effective. It's, we have so many of these different techniques, and some of the best anglers I've met over the years and some of the most inquisitive individuals that really do remain students, the George Daniel, Lance Egan, Devin Olson's of the world, that just make a huge difference. Russ Miller from Uncle Feather Merchants, Josh Grafham, all these people that are on the Fly Fishing USA team and they're competing, it does make a huge difference. And I think having tension and contact to the bottom of the river, middle of the river, and shallow water and deep water settings make a huge difference. And for me personally, the game changer for having contact and tension drifting by far is the mini leech jig and the mini leech jig radiant. As an anchor fly on the bottom, and you'll see it in the book in its design and diagrams, and above that off of a tippet ring or a micro swivel attaching a short tag of three to six inches with a mini leech, you now have two, two leeches, if you think about this, that are jigging back and forth in different directions and different side of the leader set up. And let's think about all the rocky pocket water scenarios you have with boulders and turbulent water and those buckets or zones where it's like a lazy boy you can recline on and eat Cheetos all day. Those trout are sitting there just crushing food. And if you can drift in there with less tension on a long lead or a thin diameter and get it into those zones, it's incredible not only how fish react, but how aggressive they are. It's almost like a streamer reaction to a nymph, but instead of it being a nymph, the micro pine squirrel and the design of both of those bugs really does bring the fly to life and trigger a response. So I think it is a fad in the sense that it's gained popularity. People realize how effective it is and how many different ways that they can apply these methods, whether it be in river settings or even the same concept with drop shot on still waters where you have 90 degree rigs and your tension to the bottom. It really does help an angler find the fish from top, middle, and bottom of the columns. So I think it's a great technique to be used and a lot of great information from so many awesome anglers out there. Yeah, yeah. Another one, Phil McCartney in Kentucky. He says, what characteristics of a streamer make it a candidate for a guide fly? Is it the fly profile (laughs) more important than having lifelike movement in the water? That's a great question. And I think for streamers personally, my belief in a pattern represents matching the movement of a food supply. And I think a classic example of this are crayfish. 
So my go-to for crayfish over the years, obviously, is the meat whistle. And when John Barr designed this pattern, it ideally is for bass, it's for pike, it's for trout. But starting out with bass-trout combo, when that fly hits the bottom and it stops, it's just like what Blaine taught me in the South Holston. It's how you retrieve a fly effectively is not the movement of the strip. It's how you effectively pause the fly. And just like the drunken disorderly from Tommy Lynch in the Hunt for Giant Trout book, where he talks about pausing in that 90-degree kick, that kick or that pulsating, undulating movement when it stops is what brings it to life. And if you ever watch crayfish, they'll lift up, escape, they'll stop, they'll drop, and they'll roll. So if I have patterns like the meat whistle that can lift up, stop, drop, and roll, if I have the tips up, lifts up, stop, drop, and roll, if I have a game changer crayfish style, lift up, stop, drop, and roll, that really does match the food supply. And I personally think for streamers, that's what the trout are keying in on. And the other thing to remember about streamers is key in on the information on what food supply is available for your home waters. You'd be shocked. For example, we have situations here in South Platte River in Colorado where trout stop concentrating on the bait fish and start concentrating on crayfish or it's reverse and you have to know when that takes place. So investigating the food supply, matching the natural food supply with an imitation is really key for the streamer bite. Mike Mertzler in Santa Rosa, California asks, do you think that adding UV or hot spots to fly makes difference? Oh, I love that. I do. And I'm becoming more of a believer. I think starting out, generically speaking, and it does make a difference, but just adding viz to the dry fly, a visible strip, a visible dot, and the yarn on top of the fly makes it visible to the angler. That's a starting point for a hot spot. And boy, man, can that make the difference in a blizzard hatch where you can't see your bug and the millions or what seems like millions of calabatus. I mean, that makes the hair stand up on my arms just talking about it right now. But calabatus for the visible top and the candy shop calabatus is a good example of that in the new book where I took a design that represents the spent calabatus, not the done and not the spinner laying eggs. But when they're dead wings to the side and those spinners are lying there without any movement, you need to be able to see that post. And then going subsurface, I think it's huge, whether it's a Frenchie, whether it's the radiation betis, it's a gill tuft or the wing case, whatever it may be subsurface that allows the fish to identify the food supply and then also identify, this is important, the stage of the food supply. When the wing butt's coming out on a chronomid or when you have a hot spot behind the collar and the fish can see that, it's almost like that attracting nature. And I think a good example of that is the cutthroat of Pyramid Lake, the Lahontan Pilot Peak strain. They're famous for eating the popcorn beetle from Doug Olette or Arlo Townsend for his Patriot Midge or various flies like his prospector in the book for the Truckee River. All of these flies have identifying marks that really do stand out and hotspots I think are becoming more important than ever. Just a hint though, just remember in my opinion, just a hint of color, not overkill, but enough to get their attention. Okay, okay. Gil in Brea, California asks, he says, evidently he was on a Zoom presentation that you gave to Orange County Fly Fishing Club, and he wants to know oh, what yeah. some of the biggest challenge, biggest 2021 challenges since the start of the year when you did that presentation. 
And I'm not sure what he's after for challenges, but maybe you talked about something at that presentation. Oh, yeah, sure. It's um, starting the year out, 2021. That's a great question. And I appreciate all the great clubs and the consortium in California. When usually I'm traveling up and down the coast, enjoying your beautiful weather and being able to talk to all the clubs via Zoom. It's nice that we were able to keep the spirit and the thought of fly fishing stories alive. And I would say the biggest challenge we dealt with in the West for 2021 was water conditions with heat and also water levels. And what it really forced me to do, and I hate to say this, but it's true. I don't enjoy challenging conditions. And obviously, 70-degree heat for trout is not a good combination at all. Hoot owls, in effect, we want to make sure we allow the fish to remain safe and healthy, whether it's canceling trips for a season, going out early in the morning, late in the afternoon. But what it does for us as full-time guys or just anglers in general, it forces us to identify new water. It forces us to fish out of our comfort zone. And when we do this, whether it's 4 o'clock in the morning or it's trailing right into dark, these are hours where typically we're not as comfortable because we want to stay in the confidence in the hours. And when you deal with a zero hero event, what I mean by that is you could have a hero moment with the client or yourself or zero. You could get a goose egg and not find anything challenging ourselves with that really does make a difference so to answer 2021 it was the heat of the water the low water conditions forced me to go out start early fish late see new waters and one of my favorite things to do now as of late is still waters in addition to rivers so it really did up the game and allowed me to identify a lot of the food supplies that aren't based on hatches but what we're discussing more of attractors and more to get the trigger strike, whether it's early or late in the day. Yeah, yeah. Landon, what are you seeing here in Colorado for this coming year? I mean, we've, we're already pretty darn dry. I mean, yep. Yep, I, I, mean dry. I don't know. I've had like maybe two inches of snow up here in Bailey, and that's it so far. It's crazy, like ridiculous. Crazy. Yeah. It so is you think ridiculous. it's going to be another yeah, it's be hot, dry year? I think so. I think so. We always can bounce back, and the beauty of being – a native to Colorado, I was born and raised in the springs and seeing the high elevations. And we do get snow, and there's a chance that it could come in droves in the spring. The challenge we have leading up to January is if we don't have a lot of our main pack or our main base, it makes it tough in the summer season. So I don't think of snow as an early event. I think of snow where from October, let's say here, shoot, it can be September through January. That's where we get our cold, dry snow that packs down and forms the base. And then a lot of our wet snow to follow in the spring kind of add on top of that. It's like icing on the cake. That's going to melt off first. And then later in the season, we rely on that core base. So I think for next year in 22, we'll have that initial runoff and in snow. It may not be big, but we'll have something to start the year. And then I always caution, and I just say for anglers again, I think for 2022, after we receive some of this moisture, just be ready for low water, clear water settings like we had in 2021. Hoot owl, of course, always take river temps. If the trout's lethargic when it swims off, make sure you're checking temperatures. Try to start early, start late. And when you're dealing with selective trout, think of fluorocarbon, lighter leaders for situations where it's less visible to the trout in bright lights or longer leaders set up to where you have opportunities or dry flies with less disturbance on the surface. So you want to bring out the stealth game. And that's where it's cool because a lot of these guide flies 
especially ones represented in this book are designed from the concept of a trout hunter. So that's kind of what I think we're in store for. I hope we get a dump in here, Roger, but you and I both yeah. know with the rest of the state, it's, we've got one more yep. month to really see that, that base build up. Yeah. Hopefully something will happen. Roll in here. Dan exactly. Leibarger in Abington, Illinois. He says, what's a good guide fly for trying in streams you're not familiar with or not sure of the hatches. Great question. And in that situation, there's an article I wrote a few years back with Fly Fisherman Magazine, and, and I'd like to really give a shout-out to the publications where they're allowing us opportunities to give back and teach, and Ross Purnell, Jay Nichols, Frank Martin, all the great people that are involved with these magazines, David Klossmeyer, they really do make a difference, and to see the pages still printing is awesome. And in those scenarios or situations, I believe in searching flies. And years ago, I did an article, Fly Fisherman, titled Stand Out in the Crowd, and if I'm in a new area or fishing new water, it kind of goes back to the concept of core fly belief or core fly selection. I like to search with patterns I know could be available. That could be a midge. It could be a streamer to see if you get a chase. Like, let's say you show up at a new river. One of the rigs in the book is a double trouble rig where I start out with a large streamer and I trail behind that 24 to 36 inches, a smaller mare's mini leech unweighted. And let's say you get that large trout coming over to chase your fly. Even if it doesn't take, it immediately tells you that fish is investigating, that fish is aggressive, and most importantly, you know where that fish is holding. So searching out where the fish are is more important than catching the fish, and that's why you want to think of that predatory mindset where standing out in a crowd or a scouting mission is another article I did. You're scouting water just like a bull elk hunter, He's glassing that elk for months, if not years, before it happens where he makes the final hunt. It should be the same concept for anglers on the fly. Okay. Ron from Berwyn, Illinois, he says, I'm planning on visiting family in February. Hope to get some fishing in. What flies would you say are necessary to have in your fly box at that time of the year? I'm assuming he's talking about Colorado. Sure. Yeah, it could be a great question. My personal favorite thing to do is, of course, the, the leeches would be fair game. February is a little early. You could have some fish looking for a little bit of color change where they're starting to stage and move around. But I would say leeches as an attractor, your bait is for sure because it's really warm this year, and then also the midges. And just be sure that when you're setting up your rigs, you'll know right away. If you get a reaction on the leech, keep it on. If they're getting very selective, switch up to betis and midge. If they're incredibly selective, just don't be afraid to downsize and it may seem crazy when you're fishing at 26, but that might be the key, depending on how small the food supply is. Wow. Yeah, that's small. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I know. Exactly. God. Especially for the older gentlemen in the crowd. That, but <laughs> I still remember, I used to give my dad hell when he was struggling to tie a fly on and stuff. Now I'm there. Now I feel sorry that I've ever said anything to my dad. <laughs> because <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm getting payback now, you know. So anyway, yep. James Crosby, Colorado Springs, one of your neighbors down there. He says, in late, the late Charles Mack would state that the flies he tied were impressionistic. The guide flies I tie generally follow that dictum. Do you do you have any thoughts regarding simple impressionistic flies versus detailed realistic patterns? And then he says, P.S. How was it Axe and Oak? That must be an inside connection. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, the bourbon was wonderful, and yeah, Jim's a great oh, man. Oh, okay. And 
Yeah, yeah, he's a great client friend from years past. Mike Aldridge, been a great individual, just really good people. I mean, the thing you'll realize over the years with Roger, and especially for me with a lot of my clients, these people have become dear friends, great people to spend time with. And yeah, with Mech and the history of our sport, the legends of our sport, the people that really did set the foundation of the ground we all try to walk on or the rivers we try to pursue, still waters and flats, it is. You're trying to the impression you make with each fly, and especially for the trout you're trying to pursue, it's very important. And I, the simple details is what I tell my clients every day in the water. The simple details, especially the experienced angler, you're not going to learn a whole page of information in one day if you have 30 years under your belt. You're going to remember the simple details of the day. And for fly fishing with fly design, it's the simple details that attract the trout. It could be the ostrich hurl and the titan tube niche, the micropine squirrel on a leech. It could be the body structure and design on the candy shop calabatus. My favorite, the sinket spinner and the tails up trico. The wings are the identifying mark. Not a wing that's white that turns into a shadow casted against sunlight or bright sunny skies or insulated skies. It's the clear wing the transparent wing that gives that rainbow mirror effect that gets the trout's attention. All of these are, you're trying to impersonate and match what's in the water. And I think that really does make a big difference for a lot of our selective trout. So simplistic designs, realistic designs that are versatile, it goes back to that three. That is the core value that we need to concentrate on. And I think that really is what makes an ultimate flying our legends have taught us that in years past. And now with, as a fly designer, there's so many materials right in front of us at our disposal. It's incredible. You could design the most realistic bug to where you freak somebody out because the craw spider's crawling on their arm. Or you can make, like the mare's mini leech, three pattern or three materials, three or four steps, and you have a fly that's versatile for rivers and still waters alike. It's incredible. Dave Myers, Morrison, Colorado. This is He's got some good things in here. It's a long one. But thanks for all you do for the sport of fly fishing and your input about something I struggle with at times. We as fly fishers have so many different options as far as different presentations, techniques, and fly choices. And when you approach a day of fly fishing, how do you decide what presentations and gear you will employ? For example, what makes you choose a rig up for indicator nymphing versus euro nymphing versus dry dropper versus streamers and so on? What drives your decision to fish realistic hatching, hatch matching flies versus flashy attractor patterns? Do you decide somewhat in advance or only after you've been down to the water and observed the conditions? How do you boil it all down and make the educated guess about what's going to work for that day? I'm waiting for the answer on this one. <laughs> with, with bated yeah, breath. It, yeah, that's exactly it. It's, it's loaded. I appreciate the question. It starts with approaching in threes. And I do believe that the number one most important thing, and I'll stick with this because it is true, I think, it's timing is everything. So when you're timing your trip, it's the time of day that allows you to determine when to be there for the hatch or the warmest weather for the hatch, the time of year that supplies you an opportunity at a hatch or larger trout or where you follow the fish. And all of these factors come into play, timing the weather, time of day, time of year. So timing is number one. Depth control is enormous. 
And depth control plays a huge part because so many times I believe, let's say a deep water scenario with pockets and fast ripples where it's almost impossible to reach the bottom because the surface tension and the speed of the indicator in comparison to the flies below doesn't allow indicator rig. That's where your rig is going to get you down deep, longer leaders, thin diameters, anchor flies and tag flies above. That's going to get you around those boulders and those little comfortable pocket zones. Indicator fishing, I'm a fan of indicator fishing, which you'll see in my other books and video mastering the short game. I believe in tension drifting. Again, I'm not a fan and believe in drag-free drift. I like to control my weight based on how much I have in bead control, plastic, metal, tungsten beads, and how fast is the sinking rate. I'll swing through the trout's viewing lane, giving them a taste or a see of what's in front of them and a chance to come over. And then ultimately, John Barr is the one responsible teaching me this, the hopper, copper, dropper. I cannot tell you how many times, and I'll give you three examples. We did this for bass in Houston, Texas, and a little town called Sealy on Bass Pond. For we did the same thing up in Alaska going for the rainbows where he was dropping the slump buster below his BC hopper on the surface. And then ultimately fishing some of the Western waters like the Yampa River. So many times because trout see up at a 45 degree angle cone vision on their head, they're more willing to lift in the water column than they are willing to drop. It's a more comfortable movement. They simply rotate their peck fins, the current lifts into the surface, they see the food supply or they're intercepted below a drive fly. So I think that's huge in designing flies and presenting flies is starting out with depth control. But when you're analyzing what to use for flash, no flash, I'm a simplistic guy in design. So if I have flash on my rig, it's minimal. I do have the flies that are going to capture the trout's attention. But my thought around that is this. If I have a little bling on the flash body or a little bling on the collar or a little bling on a, an emerging tuft, and when I say bling, it could be crystal flash, a hot spot. It could be something extending off the body. If it's minimal, it gives it a little sheen and shine when it twists. If I feel like I need more than that, I'm going to up the game to something else realistically. I'm going to go with the purple and black, or I'm going to go with the white and pink mini leech jig radiant series, something to really capture the trout's attention. So start subtle, kind of in fashion design of flies. And if you need more bling, you need more platinum or something added to it, you can 100% bougie the fly out whenever you want, but start simple. Think about depth control and ultimately how you time your hunt is going to determine what food supply you're trying to imitate. Very good, very good. Lots of things to consider and going on there. It's just not simple, <laughs> yeah. is it? I mean, yeah, not, there's no magic not. button to fly fishing, that's for sure. No, and then you can think you have not the magic all. button, and then the next day, <laughs> none of it works. <laughs> not None of it works. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We all need um, humble pie at some point in our life. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. So here's to follow up, because you talked about weight and water column depth and so forth. One came in on the Internet here, sure. Gary Burns. He says, uh, what is your rule of thumb for how much weight to add to get to your fly, your fly to different levels in the water column? You bet. That's a great question. So when I started guiding and fishing when I was younger, I used to always build my depth control off of a tier system. And I oftentimes delivered that based off of a 10 pack where I started out with a number six, a number four, 
and a number two and an O shot. And I realized that I became visually comfortable in determining not to exact science, but just generally speaking, if I looked at a run and it was three feet deep, I knew right away that's a number four split shot. If the run was two feet, that's a number six. If I'm going down five feet, that's an O shot. And that worked for years. And what I realized over time is that trout were becoming wary, selective, or spooked. And then instead of relying on the split shot, I then was relying on weight, where I could match the weight. And an example of that would be a tungsten bead is the equivalent of a number two or a number O shot. So you have to test your rig. And the one thing I've learned with streamers and drives is test how it drips. Do your dry flies fight one another? Are you better off with a single fly? Do you need a longer leader so you get less drag and tension? Does your streamer move better with a pause or a strip? Should you do it long, short, fast, or slow? The same can be said for nymphs. And a lot of times what I'll do, even if it's just like a golfer getting ready on the green for the putt or you're getting ready for the driver, we all have those confidence picks where if you're lining up the putt, you do a couple false impersonations of putting the ball or swinging. It's the same thing for fly fishing. I'll sink my flies with nymphs before I drift and I'll judge it and say, okay, that's sinking. And this current speed, it takes about two seconds to get down four feet. If I feel like I need more, I'll add a number four shot. If I feel like I need less, I'll take a shot off. If I'm not doing that and I'm matching beads, I'll switch up to a heavier beaded fly or a lighter beaded fly. But I think that test theory really does help out a ton with depth control. Okay. Okay, good. Phil McCartney in Kentucky wrote in and says, suppose I have found a big rainbow that has not been pressured, that is holding on the bottom by a log, that I am positioned to be able to put a streamer near him. I assume that I'll get one cast to this fish and it better be done right. What factors would influence your selection of the streamer and should it be cast far enough away from him to allow it to sink to the bottom in front of his face? What things would change if the trout was a big brown? Oh, yeah. If it's a big brown, it's going to be nasty, probably. <laughs> a big it's going to be nasty. nasty. A mean, <laughs> a, yeah, a mean, just a nasty, mean predator. And I, I think about that when I say just it could be in looks, but most of the time it's just nasty where they're just really mean and aggressive. And a brown, especially a dominant predatory brown, larger in size, they're ready to kill. I mean, they're smart fish. I think brown trout are one of the smartest species of trout. And the reason I say that is because when you're dealing with brown trout, they hunt. And a lot of these fish are so smart, they hunt at night. They don't even hunt during the day. They've realized a lot of their food supplies are going to come into shallower water where they don't have to worry about predators above. And if I were in a setting like that with streamers, which has happened numerous times, that again is where that double trouble rig comes into play. And that diagram and the make for these flies are in the book. It could be overkill on the flash. You may have too big of a streamer. I like to think simplistic flies with a little bit of flash. The double gongo is a great one for this where it doesn't sink too fast, but it's got the tungsten head, the deer hair base around the tungsten eyes, allows it to sink, but it's not too much. And if you trail behind that 24 to 36 inches, that mini leech or the mini leech jig, you then have the attracting streamer in the small natural food supply. You can determine what the fish wants. I like to overshoot the target. And I learned this casting for tarpon in my 20s. You overshoot the intercepting line. 
So you visualize the putt on the green for a golfer. You're going to visualize where that fish is swimming or where you think the flies are going to drift to. Cast well above or out of view, and then manipulate and strip your flies into a drifting position or a position where you can present effectively. If you just cast a Hail Mary and strip back, you're oftentimes going to miss the fish. So I like to intercept the fish or just like a quarterback leading a receiver with a pass, you're visualizing that lineup. And that really does help you to deliver to the trout and try to keep the theory of attractor and realistic natural for both of your flies. Hey, we've got Chris in Cedar Falls, Iowa. He says, I know you fish a lot of stillwater lakes for trout around the U.S. What are your favorite stillwater patterns for trout in these lakes? Additionally, what fly fishing techniques do you prefer to use in these stillwater lakes? No, that's a great question, too, and a lot of good information in this one. 100% my go-to confident fly, and I'll say this with so much confidence that 70% of the trout that my clients or I catch on any still water is the mini leech jig, the mini leech jig radiant, and the mini leech jig damsel. But the mini leech jig and the mini leech jig radiant are amazing patterns because they represent a non-escaping food supply, and that's how I visualize still waters. If you haven't seen leeches move in still waters, it'll blow your mind. In my presentations, I show video that I've captured over the last 10 years of swimming leeches. They're like a four inch ribbon that swims at the same speed of a bait fish. The beauty of a leech for a trout though, is that it's not going to see the trout coming. It's a non-escaping meal, meaning that it's going to swim in the same fashion. As soon as the trout locates that, it's a giant meal it's going to take. And I like to approach still waters. And in the book, The Hunt for Giant Trout and Sight Fishing for Trout, the trout tips and Colorado's best fly fishing, we mentioned these techniques. I think of still waters where I break it down where I'm looking for drop lines and color change. I'm looking for intercepting points and I'm looking for structure, whether it's rocks or vegetation. And those are the three key components that you need for any still water. If you have a bay where the water goes from a point peninsula into the bay, you're gonna have the point for the intercepting zone. You'll have drop lines where you'll see the color change. Even if you're colorblind, you'll see light and dark. That's where you can identify fish crews in deep water coming in the shallows to feed. And even if you don't have rocks, the beauty of still water with penetrating light most of the year, you have vegetation growth. It's just like skyscrapers on the, the side of the road in the city. When a car is driving at the base of that road, looking left and right with these skyscrapers, Trout do the same thing swimming amongst or in between vegetation, and you can deliver to those fish without spooking or allowing that trout to or other species of fish to identify you, and they'll still continue to feed. Okay, we have this is <laughs> this goes back to the guides tying flies at night and, and being somewhat underappreciated, I think. But <laughs> Bill Thomas in Charlotte, North Carolina, he says, I've taken several guide trips. Why do some shops? charge for flies and some do not seems like the price of a day trip that they should be included and that's different all over the world i've found like like the guides in belize that i've worked with all the time i mean they they have trouble just getting materials down there much less time most of the time so there you have to bring your own flies much less have them have the guide have them but what's the general take on that in the world now sure 
Yeah, and it's that's a great question, and, and it's one that's brought up daily. And with all due respects on both sides of the fence, some shops set up where they supply the trip, and they prefer the angler come into the shop, whether it's with the guide, and most of the time it is, or without, and selecting the fly. Sometimes the guides select the fly for the day out of the bend with the clients there. Sometimes they don't. I've personally learned that the shops that do that, it's a nice opportunity to build a rapport with the new client. For example, let's say you walk into a shop, and I've done this in Montana is a good example. You go into the shop in the morning, you're getting ready to start the trip, and the guide's picking out flies, and he's talking to you about the insects before you get on the water. That's a great way for you to learn or start your day with entomology. Other guides, let's say they're independent and they don't work out of a shop, then they're going to have the flies in their box tied the night before, and their approach will be different where in the parking lot, they'll bust out a box and show it to you. And I think it really is based on that starting point where it's how the trip is represented, meaning is it set up where the guide works for the shop or the guide is independent? And you have both of those Mm -hmm. identities. But I would caution anglers to not take it as a positive or negative approach on either side. I would take it as a learning opportunity. If you can learn from picking flies out of the bin, even if you buy them, if you think about it, you have a professional picking those flies for you. You're going to use those flies, whether it's on that river or other waterways. If you have the confidence where it's an independent guide and he's tied the flies for you the night before, it goes back to what we discussed earlier. That angler and that guide's up time bugs for you the night before he knows what's going to work and he'll display it on the water so i think it's really how it's set up being outfitter with guides independent outfitters or independent guides working on their own but you do advantage yourself with learning entomology learning matching food supplies and bait fish and i would just try to make it a learning lesson on both sides of the fence Oh, that's a great approach. Great view on that. And it really works for everybody, I think, in that fashion, like you said, considering it a learning experience. Yeah. Phil McCartney wants to know about carp. Do you have fly choices for carp? Oh, it's a great question. So if you ever want to challenge yourself on streamer fishing, whether you're going to go to the salt or you think you have it dialed in on every trout you encounter, just go fish for carp for a couple months, and then you'll go back to the drawing board for sure. They're incredibly selective. Very similar in permit to where you can have days where it's on fire and you're catching a lot of fish, and then you'll go a week with already any fish willing to look at your food supply. The cool thing about carp, and I think what I've found to be the most important value, and I learned this from Brad Beefus and working with him at Scientific Anglers and all the great companies has been a, really just a treat. But Brad taught me many years ago, and Barry Reynolds is in the same boat, and also Dave Whitlock now with his knowledge in French and carp. I like to think about flies that gain depth quickly, but here's the key factor is less disturbance on the surface. Man, is that a challenge. You can have carp feeding in the flat or carp on the edge of the river, and when you make the presentation, you're trying to remain stealth. If there's a splash or splat on the surface, it blows the whole pot up or it blows that fish out of the water. They'll no longer feed. They'll scurry off like a lightning bolt. So I like using imitations, and in the book, a good example, that would be the mini leech jig. That's a great fly that sinks very soft. The, the other imitations on the market, it really isn't about fly selection. It's more how they land. So I would really look at that. Near enough is another great one. There's other carp imitation. Chase out of Texas is tying a few that are coming out with Umpqua. But think about that first. But that's the reason where 
you can gain maximum depth control. Just remember this for carp. A small tungsten bead, a 2.3 or a 3.2, is relatively small. But how fast that fly will sink with that heavily weighted bead is incredible. And whether it's bead eyes or one single bead, it's enough to where it lands on the surface, minimal disturbance, gets down in front of the carp. And then when it's on the bottom and the carp are hovering over, think of it like a vacuum. They're going to suck up the food supply. You want to intercept them, move it into a position where they'll swim over or near. And then once they're near, give it that little micro movement and hopefully you'll get that fish to suck up the fly, and then the fight's on. Okay. All right. Let's see here, because we're running short on time. Charles Phelps, Minnesota, says, are there any flies that you make an exception with? That is to say, are there any flies that are time-consuming to tie but tend to vastly outcatch your guide flies? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there's some. I mean, I think the best example on earth, about a fly that would really produce day in and day out. And it's the foundation of where my fly design came from is the Copper John and his amazing imitation of a nymph, whether it's the jig pattern or the classic pattern where it doesn't have a jig hook. But you're talking about multiple steps and the steps are time consuming. But being that how time consuming they are, the fly represents so many key factors. It's realistic, it's durable, it's versatile. But the element that fly has, which is really key, is the flash, the attractant to the body. You can mix and match the color. And I think that's a great example of you may not tie a dozen, but if you start your tying session with the complicated fly first, and let's say you crank out three, you'll never regret having them in your box. And it also builds confidence to where you can have more complicated flies. It makes you a better tire and moving forward it allows you opportunities to catch more fish. And there are some patterns in this book. When we deal with Angus Drummond's swiper as a streamer or Dave Hoover's animal, the flies have minimal materials. They have a little bit more complexity in their make and design. But once you can tie both of those, whether it's a brush or you're threading needles through skin, it makes you a better tire and believer in the streamer game. And that's a good example with the Prospector Arlo Townsend for my flies, the most complicated designs are the Candy Shop Calabatus for drives and subsurface is the Mini Leech Jig Damsel. The Mini Leech Jig Damsel has three position points in its design, the hook up at 45, the hook flush above the vise, and then the flies basically reversed below where you're tying it from on bottom of the hook shank. So three different hook positionings but you only have five materials. So I just encourage anglers to try more of that. But I think that, yeah, the Copper John is the best example of that. By Interesting. This is, this is interesting because and we, we had kind of traded text on this question before the show. Richard George in Colorado sure. Springs. I'm going to read his things out. Now, this I know happens a lot in the salt, but I didn't realize this was <laughs> yeah. an issue in freshwater. At least, yeah. well, it happens with pike and muskie and stuff, but I hadn't thought of it with trout. Anyway. Here it is. He says, I have a weird question for you. I fish some of the same rivers you do, and they hold large trout. My question is, when I catch a trout some size 8 inch to 15 inches, lately a larger trout comes out of the deep trying, I assume, to eat the hooked trout. What do you do? Let it eat the smaller one or break the fish off or horse it in fast? <laughs> I don't want to fish dying just because I caught it and make it an easy meal. So, yeah, talk yes. to that because you seem to excited to talk about that. I am. It's but It's so hilarious because it's, if I were to give audio, it, it goes something like this. The client's down or upriver. 
and let's say I have two clients for the day and I'm working with somebody downstream and the other angler upstream hooks the fish and you hear the audio. It's, oh, I, I got one. Oh, it's a small one. It's a small. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. It's a giant. It's a giant. And then I go up to net the fish and I literally net a 24 inch trout. And it started out as, ah, nah, no big deal. It's just a little guy. You know, I'm going to wiggle him off. I would say, and this is amazing, but it's true because you brought it up and thought, man, is that a, a valid, not question, but a valid point. This has happened a lot. Over yeah. 25% of the small trout that we hook day in and day out are not only pursued, sometimes they're eaten by larger trout. And I call it the bait and switch. Most of you have been there if you have a time on the water with trout, and you've seen this happen. You may not realize it until now when we're having this discussion. But let's say you hook a fish, and the fish is head shaking, rattling, and rolling. A lot of times, vibration and commotion in water triggers a predator to come over and look and investigate. And when you have a large dominant fish that's surrounded by smaller fish, the prime feeding zone is sought out by the predatory fish. So if I hook a 10-inch trout, even if it's not followed and pursued trying to be eaten by the other fish, throughout the course of the battle, you're going to see other fish come out and look. And as a sight fisherman and a trout hunter by nature, when I teach clients, I keep a visual representation of each one of those trout. So if you fight a fish and you move through 30, 40 feet of water through a couple boulder clusters, I'm always aware of if I see another fish come out and peek or if I see another fish come out and actually try to eat the fish. Now the question is, what do you do? If the fish takes a peek, come back and deliver with subtlety and try to deliver something smooth, like a presentation, a nice dead drift. If it comes over and is trying to eat your fish on your rig, literally sometimes they'll eat that fish and you land them both, or you'll drop your nymph rod like a mic, grab your streamer rod, quickly go back into position and start delivering streamers. Never once, in the last 15 years of guiding, have I delivered a trip to an angler without each angler having two disciplines rigged and at the ready. I call it double fisted. And that was in my site fishing for trout book. And that's literally the code I live by is to make sure in situations like that, instead of having to switch a nymph rig or switch a dry fly rig, I have them both ready knowing which each discipline that's producing the best results from the week prior we're going to have those ready to go so I can switch up at a moment's note. Interesting. Well, that's a good one to end, end the show on. Yeah, we're yeah. out of time, Lynn, but you over-delivered as usual, and I really appreciate it. <laughs> and I know everybody else does, you too. But, but we're out of time. No, stick with me because we're going to give away your book and uh, a couple other things here. So stick with me a few more minutes, and we'll do just that. We're going to give away yeah, real a quick, Roger. If, yeah. If you don't mind, real quick, I just want to say one thing, and and this is very important and dear to me. I want to give a huge thanks to Umqua Feather Merchants and Jeff Fryover, Russ Miller, Jacob, Sam, Jeff, Brent Bauer, everybody at that company, John Barr, everybody over the years who's really given me an opportunity. I just want to give a big, huge shout out and thanks. These flies were not possible to be delivered to anglers or shops to help us all become better on the water. So I just want to know that Everybody in Umpqua, this book is really a representation of what you guys represent and giving back in the sport. So I appreciate you all. Good. Nice. Yeah. Because a great company and has served us well for many years. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So 
What we got coming up is we're going to give away the Fly Fishers International one-year subscription uh, membership and a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. And we're also going to give away a copy of Landon's latest book, Landon Mayer's Guide Flies, courtesy of Stackpole Books. So stick with us and you'll have a chance to win one of those great prizes. Ugly Bug Fly Shop in Casper, Wyoming has been serving fly fishers in Wyoming and around the world since 1983. Their selection of top-of-the-line gear and a huge assortment of flies is one of the best in the land. All products are available in their fly shop and online. Are you looking for advice? Just give them a call, and their expert professional staff will help you with whatever you need. Visit Ugly Bug Fly Shop today at uglybugflyshop.crazyrainbow.net. That's uglybugflyshop.crazyrainbow.net, or call them at 866 866- 845-9284. That's 866-845-9284. Just a reminder to everyone, before you leave the website tonight, please take a, a minute to give us your feedback about the show. You can find a link on our homepage in the section under Landon's show that says, what do you think of this show? Just click on that link, leave your comments, and we'd really appreciate it. So now it's time to give away a few prizes here. Winners of our drawings are randomly selected from a our show's registration database. If you didn't register for tonight's show, it's too late now, but make sure you do so for our next show so you don't miss out on any of our great prizes. If you are the lucky winner, we'll contact you after the show and provide you with information on how to receive your prize. So the first thing we're giving away is a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. Great organization to support. If you don't win tonight, go join them, flyfishersinternational.org, flyfishersinternational.org. And let's see, hit the database here. Looks like Mark Power in South Carolina. Mark Power, congrats, Mark. You just got yourself a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. And now, uh, one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Time Journal from Amato Books, courtesy of Amato Books. So check them out at amatobooks.com. And our winner there is Fred Miller in Colorado. Fred Miller, congratulations. Oh, Fred. So, Fred. Congrats, Fred. You Fred? Well. <laughs> oh, cool. All right. So congratulations to you two gentlemen. And now to win Landon's book, this is kind of, I've never tried this one before, but Landon mentioned, I don't know how many flies tonight. <laughs> a lot of flies, a lot of flies. <laughs> but he mentioned one fly or a variation of that fly, more than any other fly that I can think of during the night. So name that fly. And I know that's kind of a weird one. If you're paying attention, there was, uh, was mentioned way more. Do you know what I'm saying, Landon? Is that a valid mm-hmm. question, do you think? Absolutely. Yeah. No, that's a good one. That's a good one. There's one for sure. Yeah. There's one. There's one for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, no doubt. So fill that, put that in with your name and your location on our homepage in that text box and let me know what that is. I think we have a winner. His answer is mini leech. Is that correct, Landon? It is. It's correct. Yeah. Yeah. Charles Card and Dutch John up Green Riverway. Oh, Oh, nice. Awesome. Very cool. Very cool. Congratulations. Yeah, he's got some good water up there. Do you think the mini leech will work on the green? (laughs) <laughs> I do, I do, and and let's take that one step further. If you hear this, the program tonight, or when you get in touch tomorrow, shoot me an email through my website, and we'll match that book with a gator brown hat as well. Oh, are you talking to Charles? Yeah. Yep, absolutely. Charles will win a hat and the book, so I'll send a hat his way tonight, and and that way he can rock the hat and uh, get some great information about the book. 
Okay, so Charles, I hope you heard that. If you didn't, you can hit me up later as well, but go to uh, Landon's website, contact him and ask him for that hat as well. So, but what you have to do for me, Charles, is send me your address. I have your email address, your name. I need your shipping address so that Stackpole can ship you out a book directly. So put that in the same text box that you just answered the question and we'll get that book shipped out to you and you can get a hat through Landon. So congratulations, Charles. I, that was kind of, I've never tried a question like that, but it, uh, boy, I was getting I like the theme and I'm looking <laughs> to see if I, how many mini leeches I got in my boxes is what I'm thinking. <laughs> yeah, that's great. No, that's a good one. That's a good one. Sold, Landon. No doubt sold. about it. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for being on the show with me again. And you're probably, I don't know who's got the most shows now, whether it's Landon or Jeff Courier. So (laughs) the two of you are probably neck and neck. Yeah. We'll have a beer and discuss it together. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So thank you for sharing again. You always share so much and give so much and we all appreciate it. And we'll see you. I know we'll see you what in February for sure at the fly fishing show as long as we can have it. <laughs> so want to still be optimistic, yeah. I'll be there right? And, yeah. You bet. Yeah. yeah. I'll be there. Right. and look forward to seeing you. And thanks to everybody. Thanks to Josh Grafham with Wolf Feather Merchants as well for bringing these flies into shops. And most importantly, Roger, thanks for doing what you do with the show, man. It's awesome information. Great to give back to our community. Thanks again, Landon. Well, hopefully you've all found the podcast archive on our website. If you haven't just looked for the link on the top line menu, Uh, In that archive, you'll find uh, all of our past shows, over close to 350 shows now that you can search by keyword phrase, look by categories, and so forth. Check it out. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised by what you discover out there. Our next broadcast will be on January 5th, 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern. On that show, I'll interview Bruce Staples, and the topic for the show will be fly fishing Yellowstone's backcountry. Bruce says unmatched fly fishing knowledge of the greater Yellowstone backcountry. He's explored its rivers and lakes for over five decades and shares his knowledge with us on this show. Want to get away from the crowds? Join us and find out where and how to fish Yellowstone's backcountry. Be sure to add, I'm sorry, we'd like to thank Fly Fishers International, Motto Books, Lease Ferry Anglers, Charlie Leslie Fly Fishing, Enrico Puglisi Fly's Ugly Bug Fly Shop for sponsoring our show tonight. Don't forget to visit our website at askaboutflyfishing.com and make sure you signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good